0: Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to this episode of the SG Engage podcast. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin with Blackbaud. 2020 has brought a lot of changes and a lot of adaptation in the world of fundraising. And peer-to-peer fundraising has certainly been no exception. In today's episode, we want to understand the state of peer-to-peer and explore this topic in a more in-depth conversation with two real experts on this subject. Shannon Masterson is a Principal Customer Success Manager with Blackboard, and Robin Mendez is a Principal Product Marketing Manager with Blackboard. and I know Ninety-eight percent of what I know about peer-to-peer fundraising, I've learned from both of them. So, thought it'd be timely to have them both come on the show and talk about the state of peer-to-peer. Welcome to the show, Shane and Robin. Ah, uh, thanks, Steve. So, Robin, let's start with you. And where are we? What is the state of peer-to-peer fundraising in 2020 so far?
1: So, as you mentioned earlier, it's been a really interesting year for people doing peer-to-peer fundraising. Um, With the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020, many events, actually all events, were forced to cancel or pivot their activities from being an in-person event to being a 100% virtual event, or they were forced to move their uh, scheduled event from the spring into the fall. And so I think what we're seeing now that we're uh, almost finished with summertime is that heading into the fall, organizations are are making decisions about how to proceed with either an in-person or a hybrid style or a 100% virtual program in the fall. And we're seeing organizations trying to make thoughtful decisions about what they're going to be doing in the spring of 2021. So it's a really interesting time for folks who are responsible for managing events.
0: And Shana, what have you seen in the past couple of months that maybe has surprised you the most or maybe hasn't surprised you at all?
2: Sure. So, you know, a a couple of things. I think I've been really happy with the response that we saw, especially in the early spring where organizations who had events coming up in those coming weekends after things kind of shut down Acted quickly, acted really decisively, you know, canceled, well, not canceled their events, but most of them either canceled, postponed, or transitioned to virtual. And these, these decisions happened very quickly. I think what's been a little bit hard to watch is organizations that have been really slow to make a decision about pivoting their event, and now what we're really, really recommending is organizations reimagine their events altogether for this current environment that we're in. And mm-hmm. I think in the spring, the, the slowness to make a decision and certainly moving into fall uh, the slowness to pivot has really affected our, our registration numbers, our fundraising numbers, and we think there's, there's a lot more that, that can be done there. And I know Robin probably has a lot to share about what we're seeing from a data standpoint there that kind of informs our recommendations.
0: Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. What does the data tell us about what's been happening over the past six months or so?
1: So um, I think specifically to the point of fall registration and event cancellation, um, as we um, head into fall, typically registration rates are a good indicator of how successful fundraising is going to ultimately be. So late summer registration rates help us understand how successful fundraising will be in September, October, November. And so this is really, to Shana's point, been a a point of concern for me personally, because what we're seeing is registration rates are down as much 75% based on the same time last year. That takes into account the um, number of events that have been canceled. So uh, we're seeing approximately 38% of programs are canceled outright, that about a third of all of the programs that would have happened in the fall are just not happening. And so uh, when you start thinking about, okay, if 38% of events have been canceled, but 75% of registration is down, we would expect those numbers to be relatively close to one another. Like it makes sense that if you cancel a third of your events, then in total, in aggregate, A third of those registrations would also disappear. But because we're seeing such a tremendous increase in the number of registrations that's not taken, that have not happened by this time, it, it just is a big red flag that for whatever reason, either because programs and organizations are not promoting their events is taking place in the fall, that that's suppressing registration. Or um, what I believe and what Shane and I have been seeing as we've been looking at customer sites is that these organizations are acting as if nothing has happened. So if you go to their walk website, they're like, hey, we're going to have a walk in November, or we're really hoping we're going to have a walk in November. And I think what's happening as a result of organizations waiting to make a decision later on down the road, whether they're going to quote unquote cancel, or whether they're going to do 100% virtual, or whether they're going to do in person, what's happening is people aren't registering. So as an indirect result of them not being super decisive about what's happening in the fall or conversely what's happening in the spring, it's suppressing registration rates. And as a longer term result of suppressing registration rates, we will see a decrease in the total amount of fundraising that the, these programs are able to bring in.
0: Yeah, I think both of you have brought up some interesting points. One you know uh early march 2020 there was a lot of initial reaction sort of immediate hey we need to cancel what we know is happening right now because of well relative uncertainty but but as we've stretched several months into this maybe some of those initial reactions there's more of a, a wait and see <laughs> approach and i think we all know with the nature of these types of events whether they're in person or virtual there is a certain amount of ramp up momentum you know progress you have to see in participants and fundraising to drive the goal that it's you know the the event might not be till november but there's things that lead up until that time and if if you're not seeing progress there it can be a red flag for sure
1: Been really encouraged about and Shayna can speak to this in more detail is some of these customers have taken a, a more proactive approach to defining what their fall event is going to look like or what their spring event is going to look like. So they're taking a really interesting hybrid approach where they're engaging their participants in virtual, so online activities, as well as a safe version of in-person activities. And I think it would be amazing, Shana, if you wanted to share some of the examples of some of the customers that have seen some success with this hybrid model or with this reimagined model of what an event could look like. Yeah, so
2: one of the things that has started to pop up from a smaller amount of organizations and even taking a look at an organization who originally had an event scheduled for spring, postponed it till August, The day that they made a decision about what that, uh, when that event was going to be, what that event was going to look like, and I can talk about that hybrid approach. Um, something that they shared is that within two days of making that announcement, they had more registrations than they had in the entire two months prior to that since the pandemic really began. So the thing that's happening is that organizations that are taking a wait and see approach have participants who are taking a wait and see approach. So Mm -hmm. if you are not going to start, you know, if you're not going to tell me what this event is going to look like, I am also not going to register. So, um, and we've talked um, a lot about, especially moving into fall and even spring 2021, the virtual is not going to be enough. To really maintain the communities that have sustained these events for so many years, the community is the thing that really drives people. You know, there's there is the uh, there is the fundraising, and there is everything that comes with um, doing good and and you know feeling good because you're fundraising for an organization you care about. Then there's this this aspect of community and doing it with people who are kind of all moving towards the, this collective goal. You know, people don't come to walks because they, you know, needed a place to go walk for three miles. <laughs> people come to walks because of the community and because people are all there for the same reason. So that is being lost when events are just strictly going virtual, telling people to do whatever they want to fundraise and to, you know, show up at a Facebook live or a live streamed event on the day of the event. Um, so what I'm seeing, the events that are seeing success they're doing two, uh, at least two of three things for their event experience. They have, they do have something that is virtual, is driven virtual for people that have no comfort, you know, reentering the community. Others are doing something either an organizationally driven on the ground activity or a community driven on the ground activity. So uh, a community driven activity is Kind of springing from some of the things that we saw earlier in the pandemic where people were putting bears in their windows and people were going on bear hunts <laughs> through their neighborhood. They are really involving neighborhoods. Um, the ALS Association of Chicago did a fantastic event where they encouraged their team captains to essentially have mini walks and to involve their neighbors. They provided things like door hangers or um, lawn signs, and they really involved their neighbors in this activity so that there was still this feeling of community. Other organizations are doing some organizationally driven, on-the-ground, socially distanced, safe activities for their participants where they can come together to Celebrate in a way that you know follows all the guidelines and makes those who you know are re- and ready to re-enter in some way very comfortable. And I think that's a part that's really been overlooked by a lot of a lot of organizations and, and event organizers is people need to feel safe. You know, the DIY thing makes you feel safe, but you completely miss the community. So if you are going to do something community-driven or organizationally-driven and on the ground people need to be feel safe with it. So simply saying, well, we're still going to have an event in October isn't going to make folks feel safe. If you say we are going to have, you know, a series of very small walks, or we're going to do an honor wall that you can come and visit. Autism Speaks is doing a a walk on wheels, which is essentially a car parade. So how are you going to make your folks feel safe, but still give them that community and that thing to rally around? And that's what we mean when we say you know we're ready to reimagine and we're ready to move beyond virtual in a way that's safe.
0: yeah, it's a great point, and I think one of the things you're highlighting is this hybrid model, right that I think we've all seen for years. Uh, there are organizations who drive a tremendous amount of of you know organization driven based peer-to-peer fundraising, right the walk, the run, the ride. And then we've also seen the rise of the independent type of fundraising where individuals want to choose how they participate and engage. And it's an interesting time where we see it's the hybrid or the mix of those two, right? Embrace the independent DIY aspect, but you still need a communal community aspect to, to make it work. And it's that combo of thinking a little bit differently about how you go about reimagining the event in that way. And and Robin, what are some things that you've seen in terms of how organizations you know, think about reimagining these events that may be different than what they've had to do in the past.
1: So I think the idea of getting back to a more grassroots style program is one of the interesting, innovative things that's happening as a result of the pandemic. So, um, to Shana's point, um, asking team captains to engage their their physical neighbors in their um, in their neighborhoods where they live, I think is an interesting movement back towards where we were, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, before the internet and online fundraising was the biggest thing to be doing. So um, I think that's a really interesting shift. I think, Offering up people who like to participate in in-person events um, in ways, opportunities and ways to engage with others and to build community the way that they're accustomed to is really important. We um, had a conversation with a, a woman who is a, a multi-year team captain, participates in a walk, and she does it because her son uh, has a disease. And so for their family, for their immediate family, It's very empowering for them to kind of participate in this event. It's also something that they look forward to year over year. So, um, you know, the way she described it to me is when the organization opted to just straight up cancel the event and just do a little bit of online fundraising, you know, in more of a DIY style, what she felt emotionally was that, well... Like for us, we rally all of our friends and family around participating in the walk. And it's a way that we uplift our son. And losing that ability to gather their own intimate community was a tremendous loss for them. Um, She um, compared it to losing Christmas or losing a birthday that, you know, for them, it's something they look forward to year over year. It's something that their friends and family look forward to year over year. And so simply not being able to do that thing was a tremendous loss for them. And so, you know, by coming up with socially distant safe ways for people to interact with one another and to interact with those folks who may already be considered part of their intimate social group that they're already doing social activities with today, you really are not losing out on Uh, that experience for them. And I think the longer-term implications of all of this is going to be retention, that organizations that pivot in a way that engage and keep their participants, especially those that are highly committed to the cause, those organizations that find opportunities for those to continue to engage with them year over year, um, they're going to see the longer-term payoff in the participants and the team captains that come back whenever things get back to a new state of normal. And so I think um, retention is going to be a really important factor for what happens in 2020 and 2021 in order to see sustained growth and renewed growth once we get into, you know, 2022.
0: Yeah, Rob, those are great points. And it reminds me there's something that I've done with organizations over the years when trying to work through a challenge or a problem to find opportunities is is playing the vanishing options test where we would be talking about a particular topic or an objective and someone would say well we should do this or we should do that and and when you play the vanishing options test you take away that as an option to force more creative deeper thinking right so pretend you couldn't do that (laughs) and we now find ourselves suddenly in the the largest vanishing options test the sector's ever encountered, right? Uh, You can't do the physical event. So that option is not an option. That strategy choice is no longer on the menu. So you're going to have to pick something else. And like you said, there are a lot of organizations who have now been forced to adapt in ways that they haven't before. But it comes back to, you know when you play the vanishing options test you you go back to core principles what are we trying to do here we need to engage community members we need to keep our most engaged most involved most generous participants from the past engaged at a high level right you, you go back to where do you start where do you focus and that leads to oftentimes some some critical thinking and, and certainly we know that you know digital fundraising is a big part of this shana from your perspective how have you seen some changes in digital fundraising, and and how that's changed engagement with peer to peer fundraisers than maybe things we've seen in the past?
2: You know, Steve, I'm I'm going to answer your question. I think in a little bit of an opposite way. the The digital part, I think, is is well established at this point. People are very familiar with starting a fundraising page, you know, seeing Facebook fundraisers, seeing GoFundMe. And if we think 10, 20 years ago, this was kind of a foreign concept for a lot of folks. So I think digital fundraising for causes you care about is is very commonplace right now. I think the thing that is being forced, um, which I, you know, d- Despite this being a, a, a terrible thing, and you know, I'm I'm stressed out in ways I didn't know was possible <laughs> um, as a, ra- a result of this pandemic, I actually think this is going to end up being a really positive thing for the peer-to-peer industry as a whole, because it's forcing us to think in ways that actually aren't digital in some ways. So going back to you know, doing little little door drops for your teen captains and leaving something at their at their doorstep to you know to make their day and to help them fundraise. Um, picking up the phone and calling people to see how they're doing. Uh, I think we got away from that. I think we swung so far to the digital side of fundraising that this is really bringing us back. Understanding that our folks, you know, are a lot more comfortable with digital. Now we need to come back to the, you know, the in person, to the more personal world of actually working with our participants. So I think it's actually it, it's starting to come back in the other direction. And I know that's not the question you asked, but I think that's an important shift that we're seeing, which I ultimately think is going to be helpful as we move forward into, you know, post pandemic life.
0: No, that's and that's I might, I, good in, in many ways. I asked the wrong question. The real question was you know yeah digital we got that but digital it turns out we maybe were we were over indexed on digital we were out of balance and okay. we needed to find a way to get back to the the other ways you engage that aren't just via traditional digital channels that, that you you actually really need to strike a balance right robin
1: absolutely and i think what's really fascinating about what we're seeing is the easy answer is to move 100% of your in-person event to a digital DIY-style program. And what we're seeing is that's not going to be enough to sustain um, good registration rates and to sustain strong fundraising as we head into this into the fall and into the spring, you know, as the pivot happened in March, the organizations that had events in the early spring of 2020 were able to carry fundraising momentum from those activities that happened in, you know, December, January, and February. So what we saw is, is we had programs scheduled later in the spring, so, you know, late May, late June, Registration rates were plummeting as well as uh, fundraising rates. So it just continued to see a decrease.
0: So, maybe a, an area to wrap up on here, and I'll have both of you chime in is, you know, if you're an organization and you're looking into fall and spring, what are some logical next steps or things that should be part of your next discussion or, or strategy session when it comes to? Reimagining peer-to-peer. And, and Shannon, we'll start with you.
2: Okay. Yeah. I think the first thing, and and you know, again, not to not to say exciting, but creativity. We're seeing restaurants reinvent themselves and how they do business, supermarkets reinvent themselves and how they do business, schools. There is so much creativity that I have seen just at at, at global scale that I think we need to harness a little bit more in peer-to-peer, and like this is the time to take those chances, and this is the time to really write all of the ideas up on the board and then talk to your participants about what they'd like to see. So again, just doing that digital, we're just going to go all virtual flip, there's not a lot of creativity there. I think doing something to reimagine your events and, and really start to experiment and fail fast and be creative. Like this, I, we always talk about those things, but like this is the actual opportunity to make them happen. So I think, I think being, being really creative and thinking through your reimagination and keeping in mind that there are participants that probably also have opinions and ideas uh,
1: as you go through that process.
0: That's great. And Robin, what would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Shayna hit the nail on the head that getting creative and really thinking through the community aspect of the event is is going to be super important. And that's really where we're going to see organizations thrive in, in the long term with these programs.
0: Great. Shana and Robin, we really appreciate you both being on the show. We covered a lot today, and I'm sure we'll have you back in the not-too-distant future to, to dig into some more on this topic, which was great.
2: We'd love to.
1: Yeah, Thanks,
0: Steve. Steve. righty, That's it for this episode of the SG Engage podcast. This episode is brought to you by the letter P. Thanks for listening.